Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. I can certainly imagine a time in five years or 10 years, where these tools are just so, so powerful that left unchecked, they could cause enormous instability. The risks and rewards of artificial intelligence, as deep fakes of Taylor Swift flood the internet, I discuss with Mustafa Suleiman, co-founder of the AI lab DeepMind. Plus... If they want stereotypes, I'll give them one. What is this? Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack, and black, right? Oscar hopeful Jeffrey Wright on leading the charge for American fiction, a stinging satire about racial stereotypes. Also ahead... This war is actually the best investment we have made in our own national security since the end of the Cold War. Washington Post national security columnist Max Booth tells Walter Isaacson why support for Ukraine's battle with Putin is in America's own interest. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. The threat of Vladimir Putin looms large in Europe, and today the EU showed the world that it is serious about stopping him by pledging to give another 50 billion euros, that's $54 billion of aid, to Ukraine. President Zelensky lost no time thanking Europe. Europe today sends a signal across the Atlantic and the world all over that the international rules-based world order will withstand all challenges. Europe sets the tone for global affairs with its unity. Of course, across the Atlantic is the United States, which by comparison is still stuck in political gridlock over its support for Kyiv, which two years after Russia's invasion is still fighting for its survival. Pro-democracy American lawmakers are all too aware of the danger Putin poses on the battlefield and also in cyberspace. The State Department is warning Russia will conduct, quote, information operations around Western elections this year. It comes as the era of AI is upon us. 
misinformation and deep fakes, the twisting of truth, everyone struggling to distinguish what is actually real, truth or lies. Mustafa Suleiman is an artificial intelligence pioneer. As co-founder of the AI lab DeepMind, which Google bought for hundreds of millions of dollars back in 2014. He was also in the room when President Biden announced new AI safeguards last year. Suleiman says it is an incredible time to be alive during this transition to AI and that the world still doesn't quite grasp how big a deal it really is. He joined me here in the studio to discuss all the ups and downs, which he's written about in his book, The Coming Wave. Mustafa Suleiman, welcome to the program. 2023, let's say, has been the year of AI. Everybody was focused on it. And by and large, it was the catastrophizing of AI. People are worried about the elections, first and foremost. People are worried about knowing what truth is. What should we know right now after this year? Look, I think naturally, whenever we encounter a new technology, we initially feel anxious and we're sort of afraid. Like, what are the benefits? How is this going to affect society? What does it mean for jobs and privacy and trust? And they're all good questions to ask. But I think in the panic and the hype, perhaps, we're sort of losing sight of the very practical, real challenges we have in just getting this to work, getting it to be useful, getting it widely available, making it cheap so that anybody can play with it and experiment. And they're the things that I tend to focus on. My new company is called Inflection AI. We've been going for a couple of years now. We create a chatbot called PI, which stands for Personal Intelligence, PI. And it's incredibly warm and kind and supportive. It has very high emotional intelligence. And it's a great conversation. Emotional partner. intelligence? I thought that was the one thing we haven't got there yet, to it, emotions in AI. I mean, it's a funny thing. A lot of people thought that emotions were going to be really difficult for AIs to replicate. But in fact, they've actually been on the easier end of things. If you really focus on creating an AI that is smooth, conversational, fluent, very even-handed and balanced, Turns out it's possible to do it. Uh, and our AI Pi is really, really good. I mean, people should check it out. It's very, very kind and balanced and friendly. And I think that that demonstrates that we can actually control these AI systems. They, we aren't at the mercy of them. This is not some technology that is taking place beyond us or outside of us. This isn't you know, an emergent effect of life. This is a tool. This is something that we make. These are real products that we have control. And that is precisely what people are worried about, that we actually eventually will not have control, that it is Frankenstein and the monster and the whole cautionary tale of you know, it turning on its own creator. You have no worries about that right now, even for the, let's say, let's just say the American election. We've already seen a fake robocall using a Biden voice, which wasn't his. I'm just going to play it, OK? It's important that you save your vote for the November election. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. I mean, th that either is Biden's voice all patched together or it's a really good facsimile. And it was trying to tell Democrats in New Hampshire during the primary, don't bother, wait till November. That's scary stuff. Nobody's controlling that. Absolutely right. I mean, or the people in, you know, who are being faked aren't controlling it. Of course, right? New technologies bring new threats. There's no question about it. And this is a new threat that we all have to grapple with. What does it mean for an AI to participate in the electoral process? I mean, we clearly should not have that. For all the weaknesses of the democratic process, democracy is for humans. You know, chatbots, AI-generated tools, these should not be allowed to participate in the elections. And 
The good news is that we actually have many, many choke points around which we can focus these kinds of policies. All of the big tech companies provide access to these services, right? And I think it should be an obligation on them, I think, which I think they should embrace proactively before regulation requires it, to prevent chatbots and other kinds of AIs from imitating um, a politician or even promoting or advocating for a certain political party or an idea. AIs shouldn't be participating in our elections. As you know, lies travel faster and stick more, you know, stickier than the truth often. People are just very susceptible to lies, to conspiracy theories, to that kind of thing. And as you also know, and I wonder whether it worries you that you just said, you know, AI, and I'm just going to take the tech bros, you know, put them in that box. They have not regulated themselves. I mean, they just haven't. Why should we trust anymore that you guys are going to regulate and figure it out before you get regulated? I mean, as you know, in this part of the world, they regulate. They want to regulate because they know, you know, left up to the creators is the profit motive. So I think we need regulation. I just think that regulation is going to take a while, yeah. as it always does, and often miss the mark, as it often does, unfortunately, right? It's, it tends to be regulating the last wave of technology. And we need agile, technical, balanced regulators that are deeply engaged at the cutting edge of AI. And, you know, we as a company have been very, very forward in trying to educate regulators, collaborate with them, and so on. The downside is that's going to take some time. So in practice, I think it is a sensible thing for Google and Facebook, TikTok, and the big tech companies to just declare that they're going to do everything in their power. They're going to do every best effort they can imagine to try to prevent this kind of imitation on the platform. They've done it before. We've seen it before. After uh, you know, there was real-time streaming of mass shootings, for example, in the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, for example, you know, the platforms got very good at detecting when that was about to happen and within seconds can now shut it off and prevent it. So this if is the same If they want situation. to do it, you're right. The technology is there, as it always is, but it's, you know, do you want to do it? I mean, for instance, the Taylor Swift stuff, you know, the deep fakes, which everybody's now talking about uh, on X, I guess it was, Twitter, Elon Musk. What worries you about that? And plus, you know, these tech people being in, uh, in, in front of Congress because parents are complaining that so much of this stuff is is sending their children into terrible mental health spirals up to the point of, of suicide. Mm. I think that this is a moment when tech companies have to act proactively. I can only take responsibility for the tools that I put out in the world. We've designed an AI, Pi, our personal intelligence, which is genuinely warm and empathetic and balanced. It's really difficult to get Pi to say something obnoxious or offensive or be really biased in one direction or another. It's patient. Mm -hmm. It's non-judgmental. It'll talk to you about all kinds of things you could possibly imagine. That demonstrates that it's possible to create the kinds of AIs that we would love to have in our world that make for a constructive and warm life. And so I think that, you know, all we can do is try and bring to bear more and more pressure on platforms that don't take those kinds of approaches. Another thing that people, people are worried about, unions are worried about, is the loss of jobs to AI. So you can be as empathetic, warm, cuddly as you want, but the IMF fund says the AI is set to affect nearly 40% of all jobs, and UPS you know, is axing 12,000 jobs. This is what the, the CEO says. Technology has changed so much in the past year when you think about the advent of generative AI um, and adding, she's really excited about what the changes will mean. 
So they want to lay off 12,000 people and be very excited. How do you reassure people, if it's possible, that it's not just going to be wholesale layoffs? I mean, 40%, according to the IMF. Where does that leave people? I think more than two-thirds of CEOs interviewed at Davos just a few weeks ago came to the same conclusion, that this is fundamentally a labor-replacing technology in the long term. Yeah. In the medium term, over the next decade, it's going to be labor-augmenting. It will make people smarter, okay. more productive, more efficient with their time, more accurate with their engagements in working in an everyday office or organization. But in the very long term, that same AI is going to learn to do those tasks more effectively than a regular human. And that, on its face, mm -hmm. should drive an enormous amount of value. That is good for everybody. We are going to see the most productive decade in the history of our species. We're able to do much, much more with less. The question is, how does that value get redistributed? And that's the age-old challenge. If we leave that just to the market, to its own devices, over the next two or three or four decades, then we will see what we've seen in the last five decades, which is the returns to capital compound far more quickly than labor's wages can grow. In fact, we've actually seen a stagnation of wages over the last four decades, and we've seen massive growth and concentration in capital. And this is a tool that shifts value from labor to capital, because mm -hmm. an AI is essentially a capital form of labor. It's an intelligent, interactive, dynamic mm -hmm. interface that gets things done, just like a project manager yeah. or an assistant gets things done. So you basically said in the next 10 years, it'll be very, very productive. There'll be a lot of new jobs created, right? right? So AI will create new jobs. What happens to those people? What, what should those people expect if after that decade of productivity, they are replaced by this, you know, AI becomes capital? Well, one of the things that we have to start thinking about is how to ask employers to do job shares, for example, yeah. or to, you know, by default, introduce AIs that are companions and aids, you know, supports to an existing role, or how we might be able to create new tasks in the workplace that actually augment, you know, an AI, where you can actually use an AI as an addition to what you do rather than a replacement. And mm -hmm. those are going to be decisions that workers have to, uh, you know, encourage you know, owners of capital to make. And there are also going to be decisions that regulators have to start thinking about. I want to ask you about the authoritarian leaders or actually anybody who wants to play a destructive role on, 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 in society and on the world stage. So if the last election was the, you know, you know, the Russian interference using social media and all sorts of other bots and this and that in the election, this year it looks like President Putin, he fully understands what's at stake. In his end-of-year presser, he demonstrated the dangers, and he was asked, or he asked himself a question, do you have a lot of doubles, apparently this thing said to him, to which the real Putin said, only one person must be like me and speak with my voice, and that will be me. So he's basically laying down the law, right? He's saying, don't even think about imitating me, folks. I mean, how does that sit with you? Well, unfortunately for him, he's uh, got no chance because these technologies, by default, proliferate. They spread far and wide because they're useful and everybody demands them. And so people reproduce them in open source models, mm -hmm. software and code that can be reproduced for free, copied and made widely available on the Internet. Right. And so unchecked, that is the default trajectory of this technology. Mm -hmm. However, we have changed a similar course many times before in history. Consider 
online music, for example. Yeah. For a while, torrenting back in the 90s and early 2000s was the default way that people accessed music and film. People would peer-to-peer -peer share that kind of content. We have a similar kind of thing going on at the moment in open source. And what we need to see is the arrival of much more controlled systems that regulate the spread of this kind of value. It can't just happen mm. completely unchecked. And I don't think that we're in that moment right now, but I can certainly imagine a time in five years or 10 years where these tools are just so, so powerful that left unchecked, they could cause enormous instability. You, you read sort of headlines like the one about OpenAI changing its usage policies to remove its ban on using chat GPT for military and warfare. That was reported in The Intercept. I mean, when we get to those kinds of life and death issues, what worries do you have and how can that be controlled? Personally, I've long campaigned against the use of AI for lethal autonomous weapons. When DeepMind was acquired, mm -hmm. um, we made it a condition of our acquisition back in 2014 that technologies that we develop at DeepMind couldn't be used by Google for state surveillance purposes or for military, um, you know, or the lethal force purposes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still a great believer in that. I mean, I think people will end up using these tools for those purposes, but we have to be really careful because they're very, very powerful. And if they're widely available and if militaries start integrating them into their, you know, systems, it will reduce the cost of going to war and make mm -hmm. conflict, I think, much more likely. What is your biggest hope and the thing that gives you the greatest sort of you know, excitement for the positive use of AI? You've said in the in the midterm it'll create a lot, a lot of jobs, but where will we see it used to its maximum and positive advantage? You know, we are reducing the barrier to entry to access perfect information. Everybody is going to have a perfect tutor in their pocket that can talk to you about everything that is interesting and entertaining and informative to you in your style, in your language. Everyone is going to get much, much, much smarter because of this interactive interface. Our AI Pi is really going to be like a chief of staff for your life. It'll be a scheduler, a planner, you know, who likes, you know, ordering the groceries and planning your vacation and doing your administration. You're going to have a personal assistant in your pocket to help organize your life. And you don't think that'll make us dumber and lazier, like the, like the conversation around algorithms right now, just training us all to go into ever less, you know, demanding thought patterns you know, I and think, choices? I actually think in a way, if you compare us as a species to who we were, you know, before the Second World War, war or who we were in the 70s, mm -hmm. you know, we are now a much more tolerant, a much more open-minded in general species. We look on every front, race and sexuality and gender, we're forgiving, we're respectful. And I think that's because we've had mass access to information. We're aware of one another at huge scale. And that's really changed our values. I think this is going to be no different. Um, we didn't get dumber because of the calculator. And I don't think that we're going to get dumber uh, because of conversational AIs. Mustafa Suleiman, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thanks so much. Great to see you. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And next, from AI deep fakes to a different kind of fake, a good old-fashioned literary hoax that takes shape in the hit new movie, American Fiction. A biting satire about the flattening of black voices. It's become one of the darlings of this year's awards season, racking up five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture as well as Best Actor for Jeffrey Wright. Here's a clip from the trailer. They want a black book. They have one. I'm black. And it's my book. Look at what they expect us to write. Would you read an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, where you be going in a hurry like that? If and you got to know, I was going to the pharmacy. If they want stereotypes, I'll give them one. What is this? They'd be dads, rappers, crack, and black, right? Nobody's gonna publish this. I just wanna rub their noses in it. We love it. What? what? Jeffrey Wright joined me here in the studio to discuss the movie and his road to the role of a lifetime. Jeffrey Wright, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. We're very pleased to have you because this is the breakout film of of the moment. And I know you're here promoting it for the the UK release, which is this weekend. Did you enjoy playing this role, Thelonious Ellison, known as Monk? I had the best time working on this film, maybe the most enjoyable time that I've had working on a film, simply because we made this with such uh, passion. We all felt very closely related to the issues of the story. And um, we also felt that this was a story that wanted to be told. Mm -hmm. That was a story for the times. And so we, we dove into this. It was a small film. We shot in 26 days. That I couldn't believe when but, I read that. But we invested a lot of ourselves into okay, it. Okay, so given that you all loved it so much and you're talking about the issues and the story for our time, just in your words, describe it. Give me a synopsis. We've been saying satirical, you know, this amazing sort of satire on the stereotypes of race. It is that. It's satirical, social commentary, a uh, lot of laughs, but there's a through line of emotion. I think that's surprising for audiences. It's a film about a man who's a writer, also a professor of English, uh, but he tends to write from a perspective that's not necessarily marketable, at least in his case. He writes books that are a bit esoteric, you know, reworkings of Greek mythology and things like this, and the publishing world says to him, that's not quite black enough. Why are you writing about this? It has nothing to do with black experience. So out of frustration, he writes a novel that he thinks will meet their uh, satisfaction. Okay, so I want to just take this moment to express your frustration as the character when you go to a bookstore sure. and you see 
where your book has been stacked in sure. the bookstore. Here sure. we go. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. So it's constantly this, right? It's not my fault, it's not my fault. But there you are, and this is the first stereotype you're confronting in this film. Yes, yes. And out of frustration, uh, he decides to write a book that uh, he thinks will appeal to the publisher's tastes, mm -hmm. <laughs> a book for the masses. He writes it under a, an assumed name, Stag R. Lee, this character caricature that he creates in his head. And uh, he's forced now to lead a dual life because that book becomes the best-selling of his career. So let's go back to the beginning because your frustration starts, Monk's frustration starts, with an incident in the English literature class. I think it's an English literature class yes. you're teaching. Yes. And a white student gets all bent out of shape. Yes, yes. A Southern literature class. And there's a word on the blackboard behind him uh, that... Uh, uh, this young woman finds to be uh, offensive. She's a bit overly sensitive. And I can't so, remember the word. Uh, Can we say it? Uh, yes. Oh, it's the N-word. Oh, N -word. yeah. It's from an, a, a book called The Artificial N*** by Flannery O'Connor. Okay, we're going to have to bleep you, you know Of that. course, but that's yeah. the name of the book. It's, uh, it, uh, you know, American Southern Gothic. It's, uh, so within the context uh, of that history, He's teaching this book and the words on the board behind, behind him. That was the first scene, obviously, that I read. It's the first scene in the script. And I was hooked immediately because it was such a fluent um, uh, conversation that the film is having about a difficult conversation around race, context, language, and history. That, a conversation that's happening in classrooms across America, across the country. It's really at the center of the national discourse in many ways, the political discourse. But it's not a conversation that we have very well. No, in fact, we have just had this conversation which goes to the heart of the actual issue because I can't use the word that you just used. So I have also got to bleep it out to avoid, you know, sensitivities by audiences and people uh, people around, even though it is the name of that actual book that was written all those many years ago. Well, there was a line in the uh, that we considered in the movie that uh, little secret we forgot to put in. Well, don't take it up with me. Take it up with Flannery O'Connor. I'll get you a Ouija board. I mean, this is this is this is this is the history. Yeah. And these are um, the things that we fear talking about now. Um, there's a segment of our society that doesn't, doesn't want to, that, that, that wants to pretend that certain part of our history that never existed. Um, there's another part of our society that's traumatized by these conversations. Yeah. And so how do we come together with all of these strange dynamics happening to have productive uh, discourse and problem solve around race and representation and identity if we, if, we, if we are afraid of these things. And so our film is not afraid. We dive into it. Yeah. We do it with a good sense of humor uh, about ourselves as well. And so um, it, it provides, uh, you know, maybe a little relief 
maybe a, 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 a better space, a more productive space to consider these things. So after that classroom experience, you essentially get sidelined, put on sabbatical or leave of absence yes. or whatever it is. They tell you... Cancelled. Goodbye, cancelled. Then you turn up at a, uh, an, a, an interview, an onstage interview about the latest very, very popular black writer, a yes. woman, yes. who has written uh, a book... Weez Lives in the Ghetto. Weez Lives in the Ghetto. Okay, Weez so dudes. all your radars are, are alert because you see what's happening, that there is a book about a black experience that that is apparently vernacular, but it isn't representative, you don't think? Right. Um, I, or entirely representative. It, it's not representative of the whole. It's a kind of narrowing of the black experience that is palatable to a certain audience. Uh, and out of frustration with, with that, uh, my character decides to write a book of his own uh, to kind of... Uh, uh, shine a light on the hypocrisy of the publishing world and misperceptions and all of that. And again, that's the book that becomes his, his bestseller. But, you know, the... Called? The, called. His book is called My Pathology. My Pathology. And then he has a second title that he comes up with a little, a little again, bit later. Again, which we're not we, really allowed we, to say either. The F word. Say. But, yes, yeah, so, so that aspect of the film is about um, a, a guy who's... Uh, not able to be his authentic self or not received for his authentic self. He wants to be individual, an individual who's creative, uh, creatively free and intellectually free, and the exterior world is kind of stunting him. But it's not simply uh, limited to the black experience. I think all of us want to be seen. Mm -hmm. All of us want to be free. All of us want to be seen as our authentic selves, and there's resistance to that. So for that reason... I've uh, had many people who've seen the film now who related to that story who weren't black men, but said, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get the pressures from the outside mm -hmm. that are want to force me to be something that I'm not, that kind of limit, you know, the, uh, the scale and scope of who I am. So there's a universality to it um, that I think is welcoming to audiences. So my pathology, which then turned into the F word book, your agent, who is hilarious. I yeah. mean, those scenes between you and your agent He's and the publishers, and it is just, you know, crying funny. And I am going to play part of an excerpt of, of, of the publisher who decides to take your book and want to publish it. Yes. We're both very excited to discuss Thompson Watt's offer. Yes, well, first of all, let me just say that all of us here at Thompson Watt are thrilled with my pathology. It is about as perfect a book as I have seen in a long, long while. Just, just raw and, and real. And Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some ass college boy can come up with that No, 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 I don't. <laughs> I mean, and then it goes on and on and on. Yes. So you, as a, I guess a middle class. You're having class. To, professional class. Professional yeah. ha Having to take on this role. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because then you talk to actually this author, Sintara, who yeah. did write this other book. Played by Issa Rae. Yeah. And she pushes back on you eventually yes. in the film. Why are you being so, you know, against this kind of writing? Well, that, that's a central scene for our film. It kind of represents a type of thesis argument in the film. One of the things that Cord Jefferson and I talked about, who uh, directed our film and adapted uh, the screenplay from a novel by Percival Everett called Erasure. We, we, uh, Cord and I talked a lot about not 
making a film that was some classist dismissing of, you know, uh, work that was beneath us, but rather talking about the broadening of uh, representation in film, in literature, and generally. Um, So we were careful to make sure that Monk, my character, may not be the most reliable narrator. He may not be spouting the absolute gospel. And Sintara's character in that scene that you're talking about checks him. And he finds out gradually through the course of the film, despite, despite his objection to her work, he begins to realize that she's as clever as he is. Mm-hmm. She's as savvy as he is. And in that scene, we're left with a thesis argument, but it exists somewhere between their perspectives. Yeah. Somewhere on the table there, maybe in a synthesis of the two ideas, is something that approaches the, the, something closer to the truth. And, and so it's, um, it's a wonderful moment for him because He's not the same man at the end of the film that he is at the beginning. Yep. He's gone through this process of, of, of being self-reflective, of being challenged, and all of the forces, that are, forces around him have caused him to actually take on board these things, process them, and transform to some extent. He goes through a healthy, you know, kind of... Um, period of evolution over the course of the film, which is hopeful, I think. It, it, it really is, and we're not going to do spoiler alerts about the end, but the end is really fascinating, very un, unexpected, really interesting. Uh, but in the middle of all of this, the reason your character, Monk, writes this book is because you have to... You're not earning much otherwise, yes. and you have to pay for your mother's, in the, in the film, her care, because she's uh, getting increasingly um, in, into dementia. Yes. And so it really, that part is really so full of pathos. That's really the sad part, the dysfunctional family, the loving family, um, how you have done all this that you're doing, like, you know, a, a fake you, really, in order to be able to pay for her care. Yeah, he's not entirely cynical. He's not entirely yeah. uh, hypocritical or a sellout. He's, his, his mother is ailing, and he finds himself, after really a series of crises within the family, having to be the adult in the room and take on the responsibility of being caretaker to the woman who was his caretaker. That, for me was the um, was the thing that really hooked me into this story when I read it. That was the thing that I felt most um, closely aligned kind of psychologically and emotionally because I understood that. That's, I had been living that reality when I received this script from Cord. My mother passed away about a year or so before I, uh, I got the script. She, she, she passed of, of cancer. It was very quick. But I had the good fortune of being raised by two women, my, my mother and uh, her eldest sister, my aunt, who's now 94, who came to live with us in New York. And so I had been caretaker to my mom and then having to be caretaker to my aunt. I have two children. The pandemic set in, all of those pressures. So it was a really very challenging time. And it kind of disabused me of the youthful idea that life gets easier as you get older. That's where our character finds himself. And 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 again, that side of the film is, as you say, it's it's filled with emotion. Filled with emotion. And, it's really uh, sad. And and there's there's a wonderful, simple humanness to it, mm-hmm. and again a universality to it because there are many of us who know that period in our lives, and many of us who will. And so again, it's an invitation to members of the audience across backgrounds to find themselves within the story, and and it also provides, in some ways, the answer, if you will, 
to the absurdity of the satirical side, you know, you know the kind of tragic absurdity of this perception of yeah. this man when really all along he's just leading this, this ordinary life yeah. inside an ordinary mad yeah. family like everyone Like family. everybody else, yeah. yes. Um, can I just ask you, because you have been in many uh, really well-received films and series and, 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 and Broadway play Angels in America, you know, you've got The Hunger Games, James Bond, but this is your first Oscar nomination. Yes. And some people say, what took so long, it's about time. Do you feel that? How do you feel? Well, my aunt felt that. I <laughs> called her, uh, her eyesight's not so uh, great anymore, so she has difficulty uh, dialing the phone, and I called her that morning. I said, hey, uh, um, hadn't heard from you. Did, you. did you take in any news this morning? She said, uh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, 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 congratulations. But, you know, you should have been nominated a long time ago. You should have been nominated for Basquiat, she said. And Basquiat. She, uh, she, she's, uh, she speaks plainly. Um, how do I feel about it? I feel really gratified yeah. uh, because it's um, a film that I'm proud of, proud of the work that we all did. The film was recognized in multiple categories. And it's coming from our peers yeah. who are saying, hey, well done. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful it thing. It is. It's a wonderful feeling. And I just wanted a last question. Um, do you choose certain roles. Some of these uh, sort of are in the modern history realm, if you like. Some sure. of these roles, whether it's Basquiat in art, whether it's Angels in America on the AIDS, you know, crisis, uh, this one now with the racial stereotypes. Do you feel that you, you want to be relevant in conversations and parts of history that are happening right now or not? Yeah, what, what, what I thought that was the point. To, to, to tell stories that... I mean, uh, Hunger Games isn't, is it? It is, is as it? well. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think um, a lot of people found their ways inside that those stories from a political perspective. Okay. Uh, about you know their relationship to power, to government, and, and many in many respects, a young woman you know kind of emerging as a hero that had like a real significance sure. to uh, to uh, to many young women. But yes, um, I think the best. Uh, Maybe the best uh, period of filmmaking in America was the 70s, when these gritty films made by Sidney Lumet and Alan Bakula and, and, and Francis Ford Coppola that were, were relevant to the times, yep. were story-driven but relevant character-driven films that, you know, that talked about things that people are talking about um, in ways that uh, added to the discourse. And I'm hoping that our film maybe, you know, throws back to that era in some ways and, and, and does so too. We, I saw Mel Brooks uh, honored at an event the other day. He said, uh, he said yeah, all my stuff was satire. And yeah. we, oh, we throw some winks at that uh, type of satire. He said, yeah, but satire doesn't work if it's not talking about the times, if it's not political, if it's not socially relevant. What's the point? I mean, escapism is good. But yeah, I like to have conversations that, uh, that are meaningful to people um, and, and maybe provide a little bit of comfort, a little bit of relief, a little bit of validation. And uh, I think our, our film may do that. Well, everybody's talking about it, that's for sure. Congratulations. Thank you, you so right. much. Thank you very much. Thank you. American Fiction out here in London this weekend. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Next to Ukraine, as we've mentioned, a much-needed lifeline for the beleaguered nation came from the EU today, but no such help from Washington, where congressional Republicans, under pressure from Donald Trump, are holding up a bipartisan deal on the southern border that's linked to Ukraine aid. Our next guest warns this is a dangerous miscalculation. The Washington Post national security columnist Max Boot telling Walter Isaacson that protecting Ukraine also protects the United States and its allies. Thank you, Christian and Max Boot. Welcome back to the show. Good to be back. You know, the Ukraine uh, counteroffensive against Russia this past year seems to me at least to be a disappointment. It gathered some territory, but then it was offset. It seems too that this means it could go on for five, 10 more years of back and forth like this. Why should Americans continue to pay for this war if it's not going to be resolved? Well, Walter, I think this war is actually the best investment we have made in our own national security since the end of the Cold War. We're spending less than 5% of our defense budget. And in return, the Ukrainian armed forces are decimating the Russian armed forces. The Russians have lost about two thirds of their pre-war tank inventory. They've suffered more than 300,000 casualties. So this is directly decreasing the threat to our NATO allies and to the United States. And it's also upholding the principles of liberalism, democracy, and the rule of law that we have stood for since World War II. Uh, it would set a horrible precedent for the world if Russia were to get away with its unprovoked aggression. That would be a green light for China to attack Taiwan, for North Korea to attack South Korea. We don't want to live in that kind of world. The Ukrainians are fighting for our values with a small amount of aid. We are helping them to keep their nation intact. And even though the counteroffensive failed, Russia has also failed in its attempt to destroy Ukraine. Eighty percent of Ukrainian territory remains in Ukrainian hands. The, the country continues to function. It's a liberal democracy. It is very much in our moral and strategic interest to continue helping Ukraine to defend itself without right. risking a single American soldier. And you say the Russians haven't been able to capture much territory, the Ukrainians haven't. We seem almost to be frozen in place within 100 kilometers of the line we have now. Why can't we get to a truce or a ceasefire in place? Well, Putin has shown no interest in genuine peace negotiations. And the widespread speculation is he is waiting to see if Donald Trump wins the November election because Trump is very hostile to Ukraine, very friendly to Putin. He actually just recently said that he was the apple of Putin's eye. This is the Republican uh, uh, presidential nominee soon to be. So Putin has no incentive to negotiate as long as he thinks that that Trump will come along and cut off Ukraine. And in fact, right now, even though it's Joe Biden in office and not Trump, right now, the Republicans in the House are in fact cutting off Ukraine. And so that takes away any incentive for Putin to make any kind of concessions because he thinks that if he just holds on, he can win this war. And, uh, you know, uh, unless there is a change of course in Washington, 
he may well be proven correct. And so what happens if the Republicans in the House of Representatives don't approve this next aid package? You said at one point that it would, I think you said something like, it would make you ashamed to be an American. It would make me ashamed to be American. Cutting off Ukraine right now would be the exact equivalent of cutting off Great Britain from American aid in 1940, when the British were standing alone against the Nazis. And remember, a lot of people wanted to do that, including the Republican Party. They were actually adhering to an America first foreign policy before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Unfortunately, that America first foreign policy is back. And I don't think that that exemplifies the best of America. The best of America is standing for our allies and helping to protect them from unprovoked aggression. And we we need to continue doing that. If we don't do that, uh, Ukraine could very well lose the war. Probably not this year, but certainly within a few years from now. And I think that will leave us ashamed to be Americans. And it will, uh, if the Republicans are responsible for cutting off aid to Ukraine, they're going to have ownership of this geopolitical catastrophe. Uh, at the moment, the Senate is pretty close to negotiating a deal. Senator Langford of Oklahoma, many uh, Republican, as well as the Democrats, that would tie this aid to border security, to a much uh, stricter southern border with Mexico security plan. Uh, you wrote, whatever genius in the Congressional Republican Caucus decided to condition aid to Ukraine on the passage of a comprehensive immigration overhaul deserves a medal from the Kremlin. Why is it so bad uh, to say, hey, we want to secure our border if we're going to be paying uh, for continuation of this war in Ukraine? Well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to secure our border, but the two situations are not linked. Uh, we are not being invaded by the Mexican army. We're dealing with a lot of migrants at our southern border. That is completely different from the situation that Ukraine is facing with the Russian invasion. And I don't mind linking the two if it's possible uh, to get agreement on, on a border deal. But remember, Walter, there has not been a comprehensive immigration bill passed through Congress since Ronald Reagan's presidency in the 1980s. And now we're seeing why it's so hard to do that, because even though uh, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate have made a lot of progress on a compromise bill, Trump is saying that it needs to fail, because essentially Trump cares more about holding on to the border as an election issue than he cares about actually controlling the issue. And so the odds are that the House Republican caucus will tank the immigration compromise in the Senate. The question then becomes, what happens to aid to Ukraine? And also, by the way, aid to Israel and Taiwan. Is that going to get a separate up or down vote or not? And it's imperative that Congress de-link these two issues so that even if there is gridlock in immigration, uh, Ukraine can't wait for us to settle our differences. They need aid right now. They are under attack right now. Ukrainians are dying every single day. They need our help desperately. You said that Trump uh, looked upon Putin, talks about the apple of my eye. Uh, tell me what you think would happen if Trump is restored to the presidency. I think it would be a catastrophe for America and the world. I think this would really be a return to the pre-Pearl Harbor foreign policy of isolationism uh, that we eschewed after World War II. Every single American president from FDR on has believed that America has to exercise global leadership. The only exception is Donald Trump, who adopts the slogan of America first that was also used by the uh, isolationists of the pre-Pearl Harbor period. So it's very hard to predict exactly what Trump will do because he is mercurial and unpredictable and 
capable of going off in, in multiple different, often contradictory directions. But he has been pretty clear about that. Uh, he he uh, is a big fan of Vladimir Putin. He is not a big fan of Zelensky or Ukraine. He's constantly talked about destroying NATO, about taking America out of NATO. Uh, he's even said that he may not defend Taiwan. So I think all of those things put together should be a very loud alarm bell that if 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 voters care about exercising American global leadership, if voters care about trying to safeguard the American-led global order that is, has existed since 1945, they need to vote for Biden rather than Trump, because Trump has nothing but hostility to the Pax Americana. You say that as somebody who I always identified as being I would say center-right and probably more Republican in your sympathies. So you now think people should vote for Biden? Of course. I mean, I, you know, to talk about my own history, Walter, I mean, I was a lifelong Republican foreign policy advisor to uh, John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney and, and Marco Rubio. The very first time I ever voted for a Democrat was in 2016 when I voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. But the day after Trump won the election, I re-registered as an independent because I was not comfortable with where the Republican Party was going. And, and I'm far less comfortable today than I was in 2016. It's very alarming to see what was once a conservative party turning into this ethno-nationalist populist party of, of grievance and xenophobia and isolationism. I think uh, for, a, for a Trump-led party to come to power would be a catastrophe. Whereas on the other hand, if it was Nikki Haley, I would sleep completely soundly at night because even though I disagree with Haley on, on a bunch of things, I don't think she wants to destroy U.S. democracy. I don't think she wants to destroy U.S. foreign policy, but Trump, I fear, does. You have a biography of Ronald Reagan coming out later this year, partly biography and partly an analysis of all of his policies. And he was, in your book, a very conservative leader. How did the party get um, diverted or changed by Trump to, from being a conservative party to, I think you called it, ethno-nationalist? Ethno right, ethno-nationalist party. I mean, that's a long story that really dates back to the to the 1960s. And I think, uh, you know, to, to sum it up very briefly, I think the Republican Party has always had conservative elements, but it's also had these uh, ethno-nationalist, populist elements, which were a lot of the grassroots. And, you know, uh, up until recently, Republican leaders did not cater to that far right base. They they sometimes threw red meat to them uh, during the course of political campaigns, as Ronald Reagan and many others did. But they tended to govern in a much more centrist and responsible fashion, making deals with with Democrats and basically upholding uh, U.S. international leadership. Trump well, wait, is let's the talk about Reagan uh, then, because what would Reagan be doing in this situation, do you think? I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was was the guy who uh, believed in, in funding freedom fighters to fight against the evil empire. I mean, it would be a no brainer for him, I think, to support the people of Ukraine in their resistance against Russia. That's a traditional Republican foreign policy. What what Trump is advocating is something very, very different. President Biden just cut off new liquefied natural gas, LNG, exports from the United States or new facilities that would do it, or he put it on pause. Uh, it seems to me that's a gift in some ways to Putin and a blow to our European allies. What do you make of that? 
Well, I mean, I think we're still, you know, pumping more more oil and gas today than we ever have uh, in our history, and more than any other country ever has, I believe, in U.S. history. So, uh, you know, I think Biden needs to find the balancing act between uh, preserving our our short term economic security and doing something about the long term threat of global warming. And I think that's that's the balance he's trying to seek, but. I don't think this is going to be a huge benefit to to Russia because we're already pumping a lot of oil and and the and the price of oil is already uh, pretty low in the in the world market and our sanctions are 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 biting Russia although not as much as we would like. Uh, our sanctions are biting Russia, you say, but Russia economy seems to be doing just fine. How come our sanctions aren't working? Well. It's it's the Russian economy continues to function, but they have very high inflation, much higher than ours. And they've basically gone to a, a military wartime footing where they're de- devoting most of their economy uh, or, or increasing the large share of their economy. Uh, and certainly most of, you know, most of their government budget to defense production and the military. And you can but by doing so, they're being able to produce more munitions than we are. In other words, their ammunition flow and production is higher than what we're doing for Ukraine. Isn't this going to be uh, not a pretty sight if this thing keeps going on? Well, they are. I mean, they are certainly managing to to rev up their their ammunition production, but it, they're not able to produce what they need either. I mean, they're they're having to buy from Iran and North Korea, the only rogue states that are willing to sell uh, weapons to them. And between the United States and Europe, uh, we are also ramping up our ammunition production, artillery production, all kinds of weapons production. I think we certainly have the, I mean, the US and Europe are many, many times larger than Russia in terms of economies, in terms of population. We certainly have the potential to outproduce uh, the Russian economy, and I think certainly keep uh, uh, Ukraine able to defend itself as long as the United States continues to provide the aid that we've been providing. You've also written a book on uh, proxy wars, small wars, uh, and we're seeing this play out in the Middle East now. Just in the past week, three American soldiers killed by, I think, I guess I would say they're proxy forces in Syria that are somewhat proxies of Iran. And even with Hamas, Hezbollah, and others, they're partly uh, supported, at least, by Iran. And it seems like a proxy war there. Should we retaliate, we mean the United States, should the U.S. retaliate against Iran? Or is that something you really don't do in these type of situations? Well, I think President Biden has to walk a very fine line. I think he does need to retaliate because, you know, I think the Iranian-backed militias crossed a red line uh, by killing three American soldiers. And this is just one of about 160 attacks on U.S. bases in the region uh, since uh, the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. So I think President Biden does need to retaliate. But at the same time, I think he's very cognizant. He doesn't want to get into a war with Iran. That would not be in anybody's interest. And so he, I don't think he's going to pay attention to these uber hawks like Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn who are saying, you know, bomb Tehran. I think that would be a little bit unhinged and, and very, very dangerous. But clearly, we need to also send a strong message to Iran that they can't attack uh, U.S. forces or their, 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 their proxies can't attack U.S. forces with impunity. And so... I'm sure that that President Biden and, and his military and foreign policy advisors are looking at target sets that they can that they can go after to send that message to Iran. 
without getting into an escalatory spiral that would produce a, a massive war that, that nobody wants. Yeah, I always think of you as very much a realist in foreign policy, and it seems that these days we're violating the, uh, the grand principle of realism, which is not to fight on too many fronts and not to have our adversaries end up uh, joining together against us. And yet we're doing that where we're pushing against Russia, pushing against China, now pushing against Iran, and they're all becoming closer to each other. Do you think we're making a major strategic error in foreign policy? And if so, should we be opening up to China or Iran and try to not have our adversaries all grouped against us? Well, I, you know, I would not actually say that all of our adversaries are grouped against us. There are some overlapping interests between Iran, China and Russia, but they're not close allies. And in fact, I think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job over the last year of improving relations with China. And as you can see, China is not providing weapons to Russia in Ukraine. I think that's hugely important. And China seems to have adopted a somewhat more conciliatory approach to the US and the West. And I think that's a positive thing. So I think we should certainly try to ratchet down tensions where we can. It's hard, you know, there's no way to ratchet down tensions with Russia as long as they continue to invade an innocent country next door. It's very hard to ratchet down tensions with Iran as long as their proxies are attacking U.S. forces. Certainly, we should try to avoid uh, getting embroiled in multiple conflicts. Uh, but remember, I mean, this is kind of the, the historic foreign policy of the United States going back to 1945 is to try to preserve the peace in the key centers of global power in Europe, in East Asia, and the Middle East. And so I think we still have a vital role an indispensable role, as Madeleine Albright said, in trying to uphold global order. And that's not always easy and sometimes dangerous, but I think the far greater danger would be to abandon our internationalist role and retreat into the kind of pre-Pro Harbor isolationism that Donald Trump seems to advocate. Max Boot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, a napkin for when things get messy. Lionel Messi, that is. A paper napkin containing the agreement to sign this famed Argentinian football legend to FC Barcelona will go on auction, starting price, $380,000. The deal was sealed in 2000 when Messi was just 13 years old. It was the beginning, of course, of a breathtaking career as he became one of the greatest players in the history of the game. And since joining the American club into Miami last year, he's had a massive impact on the profile and popularity of the sport in the United States. That napkin contract, a deal certainly worth more than the paper it was written on. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thanks for watching and goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 